You're listening to Cancer Covered. And David did start tearing up and kind of crying. And I remember being like almost surprised to see it. I think it for him, it just took longer for him to be able to get out of doctor mode and then be replaced by family mode and son-in-law. And, you know, you and my dad had a really great relationship and spent a lot of time together. And I think then kind of allowed yourself to grieve at that point. You're listening to Cancer Covered with Green Bay Oncology where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. And I'm Kyla King. And we're your hosts. Death is part of our jobs. Everyone eventually confronts death in their personal life. Parents age and die. We lose siblings and friends. Even children lose pets. Most of us spend our lives trying not to think about death until we're forced to. But others face it frequently as part of their jobs, people in military service or funeral service or healthcare. It becomes part of the landscape of their work. And sometimes they face it on both fronts, the personal and the professional, at the same time. I sat down with Dr. David Grotolution, his wife Caitlin, and Dr. Mitch Winkler to talk about an experience they shared. David, Caitlin, Mitch, thanks for being here. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Caitlin, you're no stranger to healthcare. Could you tell our listeners a little about your professional background? I am a dietitian and I'm also a lactation counselor. So I have a time that I've spent in hospital, like clinical practice. I've done private practice just with lactation, and yeah, that probably sums that up the most. Great. So you probably can relate to David's work more than someone without a healthcare background. I would agree with that. I'm watching the healthcare world evolve. And then with David, obviously it's his in and out every day. It's Our whole family has to be a part of it uh, just because it is such an intense job you know, to be in this field. And I think for him to be able to come home, talk it through, maybe it's something so small as a great little story about someone he met today or something, you know, that um, obviously without saying any names, but we've talked about just different things along that way. Sometimes it's neat connections he's made. Sometimes it's uh, frustrations that he's feeling. Sometimes, honestly, it's emotional things, you know, things that were tough to see that day. I think that as... I guess kind of a listening ear, I would consider myself a lot. We talk through a lot of stuff. The daily grind of the emotional intensity of the situation, the up and down of the situation and what that's looked like. Yeah, I would agree. And Caitlin, how aware were you of the death and dying aspect of David's job? Quite aware of it. I think um, I've had other family members who have passed away from cancer prior to even knowing David. And then I was in clinical and part of that includes some time in oncology. So you're exposed to it, just not only in oncology, but obviously other parts of healthcare that you see that. And I think that's just part of it. So how did your father get diagnosed? He actually had three different cancers when he passed. 
I'm asking you to remember. You're asking me to remember? Uh, yes. He uh, had he had three malignancies. He had um, multiple lympho, lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. Yep, he had, he had Waldenstrom's microglobinemia, lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. He had a mugus um, that was potentially borderline turning into like a smoldering myeloma. And then he obviously had the uh, diagnosis that took his life, which was um, gastric cancer. The whole cancer story for him actually started when I would have been in middle school. It wasn't an active disease, but it was certainly a diagnosis knowing this will someday be an active disease. At least that's how I understood it at the time. So I think that was kind of the start of it. And so it's it's hard to say, but it was always a, that shadow over him no matter what. His parents both passed from cancer, so I f and his brother as well. So we all kind of felt that shadow of cancer anyway. I think, though, the last, like the, the really big turning point was he was really starting to struggle with eating very obvious body changes. He was losing a little weight. And I remember the last time we were all together as a family, it was right before he was going in, they had gotten back from some winter travel. And he was, you know, kind of sharing with us, like, mm, I kind of struggled over that trip. Uh, and we we're all like, okay, you're going to go in. And it was Easter. And I say this because I always look back at that moment of like, Ugh. it was the turning point. It was like the right, the right before. And then he was, <sighs> went in for what would be considered, considered like a Endoscopy. Yep. Like an yeah, endoscopy. Upper endoscopy. With the idea of like, once we get in there, let's see what we're dealing with. Um, and we actually were good friends with the surgeon who did that. So that was a little bit tough as well because it became very personal very quickly. And yeah. So no, I remember very clearly just meeting with that surgeon afterwards. And he kind of sat with my mom and I and, you know, you're in these little bitty rooms off the waiting room. And I'm like, this is awkward. I remember they called and at first they thought it was just um, reflux or inability to swallow mm -hmm. like heartburn. Right. And then it progressed to the point where, like you said, over Easter, we, they did scopes and, and the weird or endoscopy. Um, and the difficult part was we knew both the gastroenterologist because um, I work with them. So you get this call in the middle of the day about your father-in-law who they found a gastric mass. And then next thing you know, you know, you call the surgeon to set something up right away. And then to your point, they did a, a um, laparoscopic procedure and the cancer had spread uh, metastatic stage four at that time. So within four days, we knew that he had unfortunately stage four cancer. So mm -hmm. David, you got that call yeah. during your normal work day? Correct, yeah. Wow. So cancer had invaded from the professional to the personal space, but this was just the beginning. And for Caitlin, it meant coming to David's workplace, not to visit her husband, but to be a caregiver for her father. I asked her how that felt. It was awkward. It was weird. It was, I think what was tough about it is that they maybe didn't know who my dad was. I don't think most of the nurses in the chemo staff really knew that he was David's father-in-law. I mean, they, everyone treated him incredibly uh, and he was very, very well cared for. Um, but I think when I would come in and kind of sit with him is I felt that awkward moment where people were putting the dots together of, oh, I think that's Dr. Gertlich's father-in-law kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, it's not like they skipped a beat. I mean, the, the nurses were wonderful. And I spent uh, just as much time as I could really sitting with him when he was getting chemo. Other than that, it was really my mom coming to all the appointments, to the clinic side of things. And then I would get an update usually from my mom. And then my mom would say, I've already called Dave. <laughs> I'll to you, or David, you know, talk to him. 
So. so what was awkward about it? Was it was it because you were no stranger to the clinic and, you know, you would come in, see Dave or maybe yeah. for a different meeting or something like that, and then you're there and people aren't maybe quite sure why you're there or they don't quite know what your connection to this particular patient yeah. is? What was weird about it? I think it was more, this was kind of a very neutral place, right? And it was just where David worked and we would come visit him and, oh, let's look at the fish. No, let's look at the waterfall, right? It was very like, it was, it was, I would say it was neutral to positive, you know, experiences here. And now when I come back, really, truly, I relive every single time that I was like, oh, that's where we sat in the chemo chair. Oh, that's where we did this. Um, I, so I think it was kind of the changing feeling and, and meaning of uh -huh. this place. And then it hits you differently because there are times I've come in during the day and I Obviously, I'm going to see someone sitting in the waiting room, maybe, and it breaks my heart. It truly just is like a punch in the gut every time I walk in because I put myself right back in those shoes of, that was us, and this is painful, and this is so scary, and it's hard to see it without going back to that time so that, I was, that we were here. So it's a haunted place now for you. It's not, it's not that dramatic of but, like, oh, this is this is so hard. I can't walk in here. Mm. It's more of, it's a marked place. It's more yeah. of like, okay, I kind of, I know this space. I don't really know this space. I didn't have to go into mm -hmm. clinic rooms with him, but I had to, you know, I sat here. It's no different than, you know, the hospital where he was inpatient for quite a while. And I have all of those same feelings every time I walk into that door, that space, mm -hmm. the... I mean, even down to like the drive up lane where I picked him up, you know, to do stuff. So you just, you just have different memories there. And I, it's still very much so like, this is David's workplace. We're going to go see dad at work. We're going to go do this, you know? And, and I think my kids have still very positive feelings about it. They're very excited to come and see the fish. But, it, <laughs> you know, do, yeah. but it's also that other place. Yeah, absolutely. Just has like oh. a dual feeling. Mm -hmm. David, um, how hard was it for you not to be in the driver's seat for a change, especially with a family member? That was actually very easy. I had faith in my partners and the care he was getting. So that, that was no problem. I, I think the hardest thing was as a provider that does oncology, I knew it was bad. Yeah. And then the second hardest thing is, you know, we see bad stuff. And so and maybe some of it's my personality. I'm very good at compartmentalizing things. So the emotion of what my father-in-law was going through was probably potentially difficult for me or maybe more difficult for me just because of how I operate this job was I compartmentalized a lot. I knew exactly it was bad. I knew exactly how bad he was going to look. I knew all the toxicities that were going to come. So, you know, you could predict it to a T what was going to occur. From day one. Mm -hmm. So the emotion part was difficult because I'm so used to when you're with patients, you're their leader of emotion or their leader so that they can be emotion and you are walking them through this in a very logical process to go to the next step. And that's what it turned into versus, you know, being a family emotion person. We never talked about it, but potentially I probably was not as an emotional son-in-law or husband in that situation because of how I've operated in this job. I spent a lot of time with him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would go at yeah. the end of, yeah, at the end of the clinic day, I mean, I would go up and just sit in the hospital. But we didn't really talk about the cancer. We just talked. Besides the logistical challenges, 
Being on the other side of the stethoscope for David and Caitlin meant experiencing the kind of emotional turmoil that's common among families of terminal cancer patients, but which they'd only seen as bystanders before. I will comment on that, actually, because I did see that, and I do remember that feeling. We also had three young kids at the time, so you're trying to also kind of keep yourself together, you know, and you're, and I'm watching my mom struggle, and um, my sister and I were both, like, just hyper-focused on, like, let's get mom the support she needs because she's giving it all to dad, and um, I think I can still remember kind of that first weekend. It just happened he was traveling as we got that first diagnosis, and another one of your partners, his wife, came over that night actually to see me because you guys were together uh, out of town. And she came to see me and like really just like talked it through with me. And I'm, I am positive. I was just a mess, you know, just you take it in, the kids were asleep. And then I think I just kind of broke down um, at that point because you just absolutely, I mean, you see the writing on the wall, you're trying to process what is this going to look like for our family? What are we going to go through? What's my dad going to go through? And that's just it. I mean, you're just trying to scramble and process and figure out what do I do next? How do I, how do we do this? And I do remember that with David in general, you're very, you are a very emotional person and you're very sensitive, but I think you are very good at, you know, trying to be the stronger emotional one. I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but I remember that feeling of it was a little hard to connect because I was breaking down and you were trying so hard not to break down because you were trying to be helpful, you know, and, and be there. And then, um, my personality is a little bit to the point where I'm like, I kind of had my first initial, you know, few breakdowns. And then I was like, all right, let's do it. Like, let me figure this out. Let me figure out how I can help uh, my mom and my dad get through this. But even his biggest concern was my mom going through this. This was very, uh, it was expected slash unexpected to happen at the age that it did. Uh, and so you kind of take that burden on as well, since that was his biggest concern at the time, was that how was my mom going to do and take it and stuff. So I would say it probably took until after his passing, like months after his passing, before I saw you really have a lot more emotion about it. And I hope you don't mind me sharing, but, and David did start tearing up and kind of crying. And I remember being like, almost surprised to see it because I had shed so many tears to that point that I was able to talk about it uh, without too much struggle. And so I, I think it, for him, it just took longer for him to be able to get out of doctor mode and then be replaced by family mode and, and son-in-law. And, you know, you and my dad had a really great relationship and spent a lot of time together and. I think then it, you were allowed, you kind of allowed yourself maybe to, to grieve at that point. Yeah. I, I mean, death is messy. People do different stuff at different times. I mean, at the time, I think if you go back and ask Ken, I don't think he, well, this is me now predicting what he wanted. I mean, the time we spent together, I don't think he necessarily was all about emotion either. I mean, he wanted it to be mm-hmm. normal. He never seemed to be the one that wanted to start the funeral early. Yeah. He, he, he was more concerned about everybody else, but you know, mm-hmm. Mitch, you know, I, this is me now. When you take care of patients, that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Don't take care of me. Live your normal life. I've lived a good life. Mm-hmm. I have my legacy of children, grandchildren, those types of people. But I mean, that's what they say. I respect when they say that because I I talked to Ken and Ken basically said that he he would come and just say I just enjoy talking. I mean, we took it to the you know I took him to Packer stuff, do stuff. He just wanted to be normal. He mm-hmm. did. Yeah, he just wanted to enjoy yeah. the time. 
when he was here. Yeah. That I mean, great. it must have been hard. You talked about how we compartmentalize yes, our, our emotions because, yeah. I mean, even though we have feelings day to day about what's happening to our patients, they're not primarily our feelings and they need us to be something else and not an emotional yeah. mess right there, even if we're feeling mm -hmm. something. So we, we, we kind of, okay, okay I'm going to put this on the shelf for later when I'm off work or when I'm, off, you know, yeah. that must have been really, really hard to do with Kim because I, it, where's the safe place for that exactly? Yeah, that's, I mean, it was just, yeah. I think too, we're, uh, it helped. We're a very open family. I think we talk a lot. We, and I don't mean just our family unit, but you know, my family, essentially my sister, my mom, their families, uh, we were all very involved. You know, our, my niece and nephew were just as involved as our kids. And we, uh, I think it did help. I think we weren't trying to not address it. I think we were trying to just be as open and honest as we could. Meaning like naming difficult emotions when you're having them, even with the kids or, or when you say open, that, how do you mean open? Yeah. I mean, it, open is like, it. he went by Papa, but like Papa's dying and here's yeah. why. And this is this stuff that your dad does every day. You know, we kind of would tie it back to this happens to people all the time. This is hard. Um, I do think our kids have had a lot of conversation about death and dying, just being in this. Um, we've had right around that same time, we had another family, little family member pass. And I think the only way we could do this is really talk openly. And so I didn't mean to make it seem as though Dave was like shut off emotionally. He certainly wasn't. But I think we absolutely talked about it a lot. I think he was trying to just be stronger for me to allow my breakdowns a little bit, kind of going through it. Also, I think he had to be in doctor mode. We were putting him in that position a lot, is that I would ask him questions and I'd want him to explain it further to me. Any other patient's family that came to him and said, hold on, can you explain this further? We're struggling with this, you know, that he would... Um, he would have done that as well. Yeah. We had a lot of stuff happening too because we lost my nephew. So at the same time, so it was two things. And mm -hmm. But to the children though too, I'd say it's probably naive to, well, I know it's naive because when I talk to my children, it's naive not for them to understand that I we take care of cancer patients, cancer patients die. They know that. And they knew that even before my father-in-law got sick. When I talk to our children, they are very aware of death. It, it is not something they're not aware of to say the least. Mm -hmm. Mitch, is it? the same for you and your kids, the awareness level? Yeah. Death is something that I made a point to normalize with my children from the mm -hmm. time they could really get the concept, mainly because growing up on a farm, I, I think there were certain advantages to bearing witness to death and dying. And I've, I've observed, or I think I've observed, you know, that farmers and people who've lived uh, on a farm seem to understand this better than, than, than people who maybe live, you know, not on a farm and, you know, where death is kind of sanitized and compartmentalized. I don't actually think that's healthy. I don't think that's the natural part of the human state for, for a lot of reasons. One, it makes it harder to cope with when it comes. Two, if, if you're not living with at least some dim awareness that, that death is coming for everybody, I don't know how you ever really get onto what's important. It's too easy to get distracted. So that, that's been, I, I mean, common dinner table conversations, for instance, recently been involved in helping me make my own funeral arrangements, you know, and it mm -hmm. was just something we did together and it was, it was chill and, and fine. So no, it, it's, it's a big part of how I've raised my kids too. Their mom and me both uh, are the same that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know Mitch, you and I have talked and I, I strongly believe that if more people in this world realize what you said, that death is coming for you or a family member, we would treat each other much, much better than we do. I think so too. Wouldn't be so distracted yeah. by the inane BS yeah. of Stuff that just the end of, at the end of, end of it doesn't really matter. Yep. 
David and Caitlin weren't the only ones experiencing an uncomfortable convergence of the professional and the personal. Mitch served as Ken's doctor and was faced with a challenge of a different kind, and the usual frustrations of having imperfect treatments for a difficult cancer took on a new dimension for both Mitch and David. Mitch, was it different taking care of your partner's father-in-law? Uh, in most ways, no. Um, I, I never felt that I was going to need to do something different. And I, I never expected there to be a level of intrusiveness from David or Caitlin about things. And, and there was not. I, I, I don't know how David felt about it, but I, I never actually felt like I had more eyes than usual over my shoulder. Uh, the, the only part of it that was different for me, I don't think I've ever probably said this to you, the only person on earth that, that I less want to disappoint than David Gretolution is my father. Um, and I just really didn't want to screw anything up. I didn't do anything different. Mistakes happen. Mistakes are, you, you know. But apart from that, for me, the stakes were a little higher, just, just in that regard, because of the weird mixture of deep affection that I have for David and also the probably pathological amount of respect that I have for him and not wanting to disappoint him ever. Yeah. I appreciate that. We, we, I mean, you did a great job, honestly. It, yeah. There was no different talk than our normal patients. No. My, my disappointment, th this is the hardest part I have, is if he would live one or two years longer, which we couldn't have done, yeah. we'd have immunotherapy. Yeah. And that's, yeah. You know, in my world, I'm seeing these trials come, and I'm like, like, oh, God. I'm like, we're not going to make it. Yeah. We're not going to make it. And, you know, we can talk about the good and bad immunotherapy and what it's really done or not, but it is, for some people, a hope um, that has never been there before. And you just look at that, and you're like, man, if we could have just done a little bit more. Don't you think that a lot of cancer patients who have terminal diseases – and they've gone through a couple of lines of therapy like, like Ken yeah. had. They must worry about that. They're, they're, they're like, oh, my God, what, what if the thing, what if the, what if the game changer is coming yeah. right down the pipe? I, I mean, because patients, I've heard patients say that to me. You were sitting down there looking at the pipeline, and you know these pd one inhibitors are coming, but, but they're just too far off. It must have been excruciating. Yeah. Actually, Ken and I talked about it. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I hear you. I think what happens, now this is me just a personal experience with one person, so this may not be, of course – any factual study across multiple lines of people. But I think you get to the point where it doesn't matter. The act of actually dying, knowing honestly that it's not going to be there for 12 months, six months, he literally says, I'm better to enjoy the quality of my life and not do any more than live in this misery. And that's that. I think people have different lines in the sand for when enough is enough. They'll almost hurt themselves for the hope. You know, what drives that final decision of like, I can't do this anymore. I think mm -hmm. all patients eventually come to that. I mean, honestly, and Mitch, mm -hmm. you can, you've seen a lot more than I have in your palliative service that you've done. But I mean, I, I do think people eventually reach that. Yeah. And I think it's okay that people have different points at where they draw those lines. I mean, I, th I think that's autonomy, right? Right. It you is. know, saying yeah. this is what's acceptable to me. And maybe that's different than what's yeah. acceptable to, to, and that's, I think that's fine. I think that's normal. I, I, I think that when we cope with fear through denial, that death isn't coming and that I'm, I'm going to beat this, you, you know, even though we intellectually should know that beating it isn't going to happen and there. It was never on the table to begin with. When I hear people in those circumstances still talk about how they're, they're going to beat things, what I worry about is that their denial is keeping them from really doing that balancing of choosing intelligently about what they're willing to go through. Yeah, that's a very good point. 
Facing death is an inevitable part of working in oncology, but bearing witness to what patients and their loved ones experience isn't the same as experiencing it yourself, as David and Caitlin found out. I remember sitting with him in the hospital and kind of asking him, like, are you afraid of dying? Are you afraid of these? And he was very much like, I'm not. He would hear the lullaby play for a baby. He would say, it reminds me. People come, people go. You know, this is part of it. Uh, but what I thought was interesting, and my mom and I have certainly talked about this after the fact, is a lot of the treatment he went through, a lot of the procedures he underwent, Honestly, I think it was for the sake of my mom and my sister and I, just to like, he was doing it for us so that we were feeling like that was there. I really think he came to terms very quickly with a terminal diagnosis. I remember us saying afterwards of like, we shouldn't have even made him go through that procedure. We shouldn't even push that. But for us, the healthy ones on the outside, we get to say, what about this? We could do this. And then just See him go through it was a, was that eye-opener of, don't think that was worth it. It didn't feel like it. Don't you think Ken factored that in? Maybe him doing something for you all was worth it to him. Uh, I, oh, I don't think sure. he, I yeah. never got the impression that, that he was going to put himself through something that was over his personal line. I think you're right on that. I think because he wanted to always speak realistically, he wanted to have open conversations. So you're right. He was clearly saying, I will have boundaries at some point of, of what I'm willing to do. We then had the conversation of hospice, which I actually think you were the one that had to maybe say it. Like, I remember sitting in the hospital room, and I think you said, this is time, or, you know, that we need to involve hospice at this point. This, you know, we're, we're at that point. And for us, the rest of us, we needed to hear it. We were ready to then say, okay, you're right. Let's let's help him be comfortable and do this with, you know, die with dignity, really, and and be in his own home or whatever it is he wanted. How long was it? How long was he on hospice before he died? Two yeah. weeks. I just remember we were going down a lot doing stuff. And I remember all the family was involved. I mean, that's where I did realize, too, when, I mean, hospice is wonderful and they have great services, but when you're home with hospice, it's 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 a full family affair. Yeah, yeah. Hospice is only designed to be yeah. an additional support for the family. The work is belongs to the family. Because we were doing shifts and we were doing stuff, and they had friends coming up. I know um, Caitlin's parents had good friends that came up and stayed and helped. And it, it might have been two to three weeks. Kate was it two weeks. It was under two weeks. Yeah, Thank two you. weeks at the most. Were the kids involved? They were involved to the point. Of, so when he first came home on hospice, I mean, he was still sitting upright. He was still talking. Yeah. He was, you know, so very much so. Like, And again, just to put it in perspective, I mean, we had five young kids. I'm thinking the oldest was like 11, you know, and then uh -huh. all the way down. So they watched him progress in his uh -huh. illness. I mean, he was incredibly gaunt towards yeah. the end. So, you know, you physically, you're looking at him saying, we know this is different. We're hearing our parents say this is different. And so they were involved in the fact that they were just kids being kids. And I remember making a comment one of those first nights because we were all there. And I think my, I think our kids were probably like wrestling around on the ground. And I made a, some sort of comment like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, like we're, we're pretty chaotic or we're, we're all together. And he said back something to the effect of, I'd have it no other way. Like, this is exactly what I want mm -hmm. right now. And I think... For him, it was incredibly comforting. At least that's maybe what I tell myself. But I really do think I saw that 
is that he could see all of us together. He knew we were going to be okay together. He knew we were a solid, you know, that we we had each other uh, in that regard. I think once he started to progress where it got harder for the kids to be involved because it got a little scary for them. What was you the know, hard part for them? So what is that when they're like, like um, essentially he wasn't really conscious. You know, Delirious, he, terminal delirium. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, at that point he is fully, you know, he's always laying, um, he was having breathing. It's, You're listening to it and it, yeah. and you look at him and you think, that's miserable and that's not my dad. You know, that's not really him. I don't want to remember him this way. I want to respect him this way. I do remember our kids saying goodbye, you know, and kind of hugging him. I think that they've brought that up later. Like, we've had, you know, that was a little weird when we had to say goodbye. And I think it was just, they were young. That was a weird experience to hug a dying person. You just, you know, like you're watching their body pass away and you're thinking, at this stage, I don't want him to be in this stage for long. My mom was in the room with him when he passed. And I think that honestly was a blessing for both of them, as sad as it was. So also that relief of that mm-hmm. moment of he's no longer suffering and going through that. I mean, it's just a really intense kind of consuming thing to have the, your loved one go through that in front of you. But it's, I also think to the fact that I'm very grateful that we knew he was passing away to the fact that we got to have conversations with him. And I feel like we had a lot of closure in our conversations. Yeah, those conversations should happen earlier. It's basically just you're taking care of a dying patient. And I, I also feel this for our patients I take care of now. I mean, fortunately, you know, Caitlin has background experience in medicine. Obviously, I do, but so does my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law. And and also, honestly, um, my brother-in-law, who's a firefighter. So all of us have this healthcare experience, or so you're you're able to administer that medication. But uh, that was all. That was a weird part too, because then it's just like you're taking care of an inpatient at home, and it's not mm-hmm. your father-in-law that you're taking care of. And I, I don't know how my mother-in-law or how Caitlin thought about that or my sister-in-law, but it's almost like you're just taking care of a medical patient at that point. That's where I thought personally we lost a little bit more of the. This is a, you know, the the individuality of this is this is my father-in-law. And was he still at that point? You're saying. The individuality has gone, in my opinion, the individuality has gone. And really what you're just trying to do is grant his wish of being pain-free until the time comes, mm-hmm. basically. When my grandfather died of dementia very, very slowly over a long period of time, and I, I wasn't I was in college and medical school, I was not really very close to it. But I, I can remember mom saying something to the effect of, I feel like he died a long time ago and that we're just taking care of what's left of him. Yeah. Death just, you know, you said it earlier, that's just weird. Even as long as I've been doing this and as long as I've seen it, even, you know, if I'm, if I'm in the room and it's not often that I'm in the room when someone actually dies, when someone actually breathes, breathes their last, usually I'm there a little bit before or a little bit after. But the last time I was in the room with somebody that had, I saw their last breath, then they died right in front of me. I, I just, and it's after, you know, 15 plus years in medicine, you look at it and you've seen it before, mm-hmm. you're going to see it again. And you just still think this is just weird. It's, it's just such a mystery still. I don't think it's ever supposed to be different. No one should carry the burden of cancer alone. A cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and alone, just when you need support the most. I'm Addison Young. And I'm Tom Beckers. As social workers at Green Bay Oncology, we know that meaningful connection brings strength and healing. Sharing the experience in a safe space 
with others on a similar path is often powerful and therapeutic. That's why we offer a free monthly virtual cancer support group facilitated for you and your loved ones. Wherever you are on your cancer journey, you're always welcome. To join us, visit gboncology.com events. Did anything change in all of your relationships um, after he passed? I mean, it, it wasn't, I don't want to say it was a bad experience for a family. Like we, we stayed very close for it and we were very supportive. And I mean, I think that we each had our time when we grieved and we, we grieved differently. We, you know, went through it and I think our children grieved differently. We watched that happen, which was strange too. You know, we have um, three and they all were very different. I, I don't think it I don't think it changed us. our relationship outside of you're married to somebody and you're in a relationship together and there's ups and downs yeah. and you go through it. I, I okay. think I think it changed the relationship of my mother-in-law to us. She reaches out for support more from us or, or, or your sister mm-hmm. and your brother-in-law. So, I mean, I think it changes that because the support changes. You have one less member to support right. so that's going to provide support. So there's just that, that, I guess, distribution of support of each other is, changes because there's not as many legs, right? Yeah, I would say you're just your family dynamic kind of reass- maybe not reassembles, but the roles get redistributed. Yeah. You just yeah, here's our family now. Here's our new normal. We will forever miss dad. You know, at everything we do, we'll talk about him, we'll do it, you know, and um it's it's it is. You but you do figure out how to just your relationships strengthen in different ways and you know, just embrace that. And not in a negative way to get distributed, but mm-hmm. the lawn has to get mowed. My mother-in-law, <laughs> my, my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law has stuff to haul around, and my father-in-law is not there to mow the lawn and haul the stuff. So who's going down to do that? Well, one of her son-in-laws is going to go down and do that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it's not a negative. It's just how it is. But I think that's most families in the story of life. I mean, it just keeps getting passed down to the next younger generation. So it's just the mm-hmm. way it rolls. Mitch, how did you feel afterwards? Two things: intellectually, I knew and. No, I took as good a care of Ken as I could take of anybody, have taken of anybody else. You know, that I executed to the best of my ability and the best of the tools that we have and had. Emotionally, you can't ever stop wishing you'd done better, ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of a dangerous rabbit hole that you can get in. That way lies madness in, in, in oncology. But it's part of always wanting better and never accepting status quo is good enough. I mean, you have to be honest about the one that's what you have, but but you always wish it was better, and I and I always and still do. The only thing that changed for for me from the relationship I have with David and Caitlin and with with your mom, hmm. I, I never personally felt anything change on their part. I mean, we're we're close. We, we still have been for a long time, and and still are. For me, it's added an aspect of being aware that at some level I'm a walking trigger for them. There's no way around it way more so for your mom than, than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I can see it in her eyes. It's, it's subtle and, and it's yeah. never, ever, ever been. But h- how can you not be? Yeah. I would say I'll agree with you that I don't think anything really changed. I mean, we were, I say we, and really I reference back my mom. She has said it many, many times, um, even taking David out of the equation. I mean, we were so happy with the medical care that he received. We knew that we had the best minds on it. We really did. And I I know just how your group works is that you don't really have just one physician. You have as many physicians as it's going to take to figure this out. And we felt that. He had great care. We did what we needed to do. And ultimately, it was his body making the decision. And 
right? And it's, it's just, we had no part in that piece. Um, and so, you know, my mom looks back at the experience of, yes, it was painful, but I'm incredibly grateful we had the care we did. I know for her, it was very helpful to have you as his physician, I should say, but um, there was a comfort level there. There was a comfort level knowing that we know you and that you're running things by David if needed or vice versa. And I think they, you know, it was, it was good in that sense, right? So there shouldn't, there is no negative feelings after the fact because it was just a process. Well, she knew I'd get my butt kicked if I did it poorly. Right. And she, <laughs> I, I, I was going to, I was going to, I bring think my part A-game. of it though, I mean, she really, she respected you. My dad respected you. And they, they respected Dave on, you know, kind of the physician side of things. And, um, but I, I look at that as I know what you mean though, by that one slight little piece. And so, of course, you're a part of the story. Yeah. You, you can never remove yourself from that story. Um, and it doesn't mean you're a bad part of the story. You're a good part of the story. But it, it's a rich it story and yeah. it has flavors in just about every piece of the spectrum. Yeah. What's interesting, too, is to think about how many patients you guys see and how many stories you are a part of because of that. I assume that I probably just walking through Target in the grocery store emotionally trigger about half a dozen people just in the, just in the part of, I mean, that sounds yeah. glib and, and I'm, no, you know, I'm being a bit true. glib about it, but the fact is that's what we are. Actually, Mitch, I've never even thought about that. I think I, I, and I have to start thinking about that. I've never, ever thought about that. I think the one thing you did say earlier that I think about all the time and it potentially is a rabbit hole, but I constantly think, could I have done something different? Yeah. Yeah. That is every day, every patient, all the time. That That's never going to stop. It, and I don't think we should really yeah. ever. It's impossible. Never ask ourselves that question. I think at some point, I mean, it can turn quickly into a pathology. Yeah. You know, if you can never put that down. Mm -hmm. uh, the good aspect of that is we're, we're always going to be pushing for better. We're always going to be checking for a better solution. And so we're never going to accept stale. We're never going to accept. So we're going to stay on top of things. We're going to check again. I've, I just looked it up three weeks ago. If, if anything had changed, well, you know what? I'm going to look it up again because I don't want it. But if you're up in the middle of the night checking it six more times, then then it becomes a problem. You, some point in this business, you have to make your peace with the treatments are never going to be in our lifetimes as good as yeah. we wish them to be. Did any of your attitudes about death change after this? I felt like I respected the process more when, like for cancer, it's usually you're given at least a little bit of time with the process or processing that I am dying. I, you have a chance to connect with people, your family, you can say things, your family can say things, you know, that there can be kind of an exchange of mm -hmm. communication or, you know, whatever. And selfishly for the living, I think that that made our experience a lot better. It was very hard to watch your loved one go through cancer, but I would say again and again, I am so incredibly grateful for those months that we had to be very open to one another. I think my dad and I had some of the most honest conversations. You know, we, we communicated a lot before that, but your communication changes very quickly when you're just, you know, we've had people that we know and, and love die very suddenly. And I think that might have been better for the person who had to pass, that they didn't really go, maybe didn't go through as much or didn't have to suffer as much, but how much harder that is for the family left behind and the friends and the loved ones. We've seen it both ways. There's no ever great way to say goodbye to someone you love. It will always hurt. It'll always be messy. Um, 
But I think, you know, there's just, it, it really did give me kind of that open mind of there are different ways that dying occurs. There's different positives that can come out of different dying experiences. Two things. I think personally, it just reaffirmed that death is messy and that I don't believe that it gets better with time. You can cope with it better, but the loss is always there. That's both in a professional life and a personal life. And, and But so we were driving somewhere, um, and I still do this to this day, but we were driving somewhere, and I know I was with the family, and we were driving down to Chicago. And this was, I don't know how long ago it was after uh, my father-in-law passed away. But we're just driving along, and basically I get a text that this family member wants to call or wants to call back regarding their end of life or some decision-making that's going on. And I asked Kate, I said, Caitlin, I said, you know, do you mind if I take this call? And she basically said, you should take it because three minutes or five minutes of your time will change their life forever. I totally remember that. <laughs> oh, I, I, we had yeah. just learned firsthand yeah. of how you could have answered answering a small question. Right, right. Peace of mind. So I pretty much do that now in practice all the time. Like literally if I'm going, driving from a clinic to a kid's game, driving home, I'll have a list that I take home of phone calls that I do that I will make sure that I call them when I'm in the car on the way to touch base just because what else am I going to do in the car? And that time, and it's amazing how I'll call them on my cell phone even. They don't, sometimes they will return the calls later, but they don't over, I mean, it's just that simple call changes their perspective of everything. I think sometimes in healthcare, the way healthcare is gone as providers, we lost that. Old times, everybody always says the good old days. And I don't know if it was true in the good old days, but some of the good old days used to do that. I think we're slow to innovate. I mean, the fact is the ability to influence people, in my opinion, it's because we're not innovative. I mean, we look at how people influence populations now. You do it in small bites with frequent contact using all kinds of media. I mean, you know, in the old days of medicine, yes, you would have close intimate connection with people. And that's still important, but you'd have these long visits, but spread, there might be months or years between them. I just think we're not very strategic about how we do that. We got to get better at the communication game and the connection game, I think, is a discipline. They talk about provider burnout. And Caitlin said earlier, we live in tense jobs. Mm -hmm. And I go in between, sure, I get worn down and stuff, but if you are, and this is probably not just true in physician world, it's true in any world, frankly, in any business, and in any profession people have. But if I'm a provider and I make those calls and I feel like I am making that life better, I'm making the community better that way or that family, that should energize you. Mm -hmm. There was nothing about the experience with Ken that changed my attitude about death. It did reaffirm what I had concluded even before I became Ken's physician, and that was absolute honesty and openness about the real facts are critical. As far as I can tell, Ken got the death that he hoped for and wanted in no small part because he was so real about it. Mm -hmm. You know, denial gets in the way of that sometimes. And, and he did have that, that precious time that, that, that you described, and that was affirming. I just liked the guy so damn much. I really did. It yeah, was a real privilege to be incredible. involved with him. And it, it, it hurt because uh, I did like him. And I, <laughs> I, I, I still miss him. I and mean, not like a bit, not, not like you guys, but I, I miss him. He was a great guy. I think it's fair to say a lot of people miss him outside of our mm -hmm. family. Well, thank you for taking time to talk about this today. I know it's a raw topic, but it's one that's important and close to everyone's hearts here at this table in the work that we do. So thank you. Thanks. It's our pleasure. Thanks, guys. 
Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team, go to gboncology.com. Oh, 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 oh,